This is a Jewish TV channel presentation. Welcome to Talking Point, where controversial subjects are brought into sharp focus. Conversations with JTVC show host Laura Kessler comes up next. Throughout the Jewish diaspora, our children are experiencing a full-scale mental health crisis. This week, the CDC reported nearly 45% of high school students were persistently sad or hopeless in 2021. Girls were twice as likely as boys to think about suicide, especially ages 10 to 14. 18% of teens said they seriously considered suicide in the past year. That number multiplies to nearly 50% for those who are LGBTQ. And sadly, 9% in the study tried to take their own lives during the last year. When it comes to cyberbullying, 12% of 11 to 16-year-old kids on social media reported they'd been bullied online, and that number rises to 30% among those with a probable mental disorder. Among the 17 to 24-year-olds, 20% of young women were nearly twice as likely to report bullying compared with 11% of young men. Between the effects of COVID lockdowns, social media, and cyberbullying, our kids are in crisis. And that's before we've even factored in additional bullying for anti-Semitism. My guest today is an expert on cyberbullying and social media victimization. Dr. Jessica Imami is an Iranian-Italian-American adjunct professor at American University specializing in gender, Iranian anti-Semitism, and technology. Her current research analyzes the anti-Semitism in the speeches and political activity of the Ayatollah Khomeini. Jessica is also the author of the new book, Social Media Victimization, Theories and Impacts of Cyber Punishment. She holds a PhD in sociology and was research fellow at the George Mason University Institute for Immigration Research and lead researcher for the American Sociological Association Minority Fellowship Program. We're honored to have her with us today. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So, Jessica, you are a liberated Iranian woman. You're Jewish, American, a feminist, and a professional researcher who exposes the anti-Semitism of Ayatollah Khomeini. Are you basically the Iranian regime's worst nightmare? <laughs> well, I'm certainly rare in that I do point out the immense anti-Semitism underlying the entire regime, but I'm probably not their worst nightmare. <laughs> so in, in light of that, I have to start with, what do you make of the unfolding events in Iran right now? You know, every once in a while, when there are authoritarian regimes, there are opportunities for a jailbreak. And what we're seeing right now is a, a monumental and very rare opportunity for Iranians to try to free themselves of such an oppressive regime. Um, it's really incumbent on us as around the world for all the governments, global communities, everyone, to join in and help the Iranians gain their own freedom. It's a very rare moment. 
The subject matter of your book must have particular significance to you. Can you tell our listeners about your identity, your family's journey, and how you arrived at this moment where you've written a book about cyberbullying and social media victimization? Well, thank you. Um, I think that identity is very much tied in to social media. Uh, one of the reasons is because we use social media to find one another, uh, different identity groups, different opinion groups. So it's a great tool to bring people together. And, of course, in the Iranian context, you're seeing that social media is crucial to the activists on the ground who are being harmed by the regime to get the word out to the global community. Um, sometimes, actually frequently, the Iranian government completely shuts down the Internet, and there are people in the United States and Western Europe and abroad who are trying to broaden Internet connections to the Iranians on the ground. Me, myself, um, I am a Jew by choice, and in that context, I'm actually probably a little more in danger than someone who grew up as a Mizrahi Jew in Iran. And I come to this by uh, just becoming very amazed where when I first started using social media, I was having these arguments with people I didn't know, and they felt like life or death arguments, like, oh, it's so important for me to stay on here on this platform that I'm using and argue with, you know, Mr. Uh, Mickey Mouse about something that has entirely no relevance to the rest of my day. As this kept happening, and actually sometimes I would end up with uh, kerfuffles with people that I knew, then I realized that social media is doing something to us. And that's how I started doing the research for my book, uh, my book uses the theories that you find in extremist studies, uh, communication professors who have looked at uh, studies of extremism and the, the patterns that drive people to become terrorists and extremists. Um, one of the people that wrote my foreword was Dr. Randall Rogan. Um, so Rogan's theory says that we all want to be acknowledged, we all want to feel significant, and as mortals, as, be, as beings that are aware of our mortality, every time we come in contact with someone on social media who uh, says something that is so odious to our worldview and our deeply held values, we feel threatened. And this is a natural response. So this is the process that is going on online, and all these people we don't know because the algorithms bring us together. We don't bring us together. The platforms do. It's people we don't know who you know, might flippantly say something that is so threatening so everybody's getting in conflict with everyone else. And another thing that I think especially young people don't realize is that um, – Social media is a communication tool. It's not really, you're not really interacting with people. You're more than anything putting out a message. And when you put out a message, you really need a lot more me media literacy than most of us have in order to do it successfully. So 
So that's how I started writing this book uh, or looking at the process of, you know, what turns me into a troll because we all could become a troll online. It's a natural response. And how do we how do we prevent that? How do we keep our kids safe online? Yeah, it's really interesting. It makes me think of Andy Warhol and, you know, his infamous prediction of the 15 minutes of fame and who would have envisioned it would be sort of like this. <laughs> yes. Oh, I, I would have loved to see Warhol on social media. <laughs> he'd probably yeah. he'd probably refuse to be on there, but we'll you know who knows. I could see that. <laughs> so, what is the gist of your book to a layman, and how does it relate to the Jewish community? Uh, the gist of my book is the that basically describes the psychological processes and the psychosocial processes that drive us to get into conflict online. Why do I call it a theory of cyber punishment? Because when you get threatened online by somebody who's just said something or made a comment that you don't like or done something that you don't like that's on social media, a lot of people's first reaction is, I need to get that person. I need to silence them. So what we would do, what a lot of people do is like they'll answer back on a comment, like reply, another reply, another reply, and then it just goes downhill from there. Or else they'll even do more. They'll try to cancel the person, find out who their employer is, call them up, try to get them fired, um, try to humiliate them or follow them online and you know this has escalated to a point for many people where some people have committed suicide others have gotten into divorce or they have to go into hiding and it's basically what we call the modern day cancellation Um, so in that sense it's really important that we understand how this process happens that anyone is vulnerable and including you or me and uh, that's what the book is about. All of us are vulnerable to to doesn't getting someone, punished and to punishing others. Yeah, doesn't this sort of tie into addiction? Because uh, uh, we were talking before about a course at Stanford that literally taught uh, a lot of the techniques, and so many of the people went on to start Instagram and other things using the work of a single professor. Um, I mean, is it addiction psychology at work? There's certainly some of that. And how you had asked before how it ties into the social community, as uh, into the Jewish community, as you know that a lot of anti-Semitism is also propagated online. So we, again, we need that media literacy for children to understand one, when they're being uh, persuaded in a way by some people that are extreme or, you know, if they see a deep fake or if they see something that undermines their value as a Jewish person, um, these are things that can be taught to people to recognize, especially to children. And going to addiction, too, one of the biggest ways that the platforms keep people, but especially children online, because it's so lucrative, is by creating 
prompt that almost makes it so even if you don't really like what you're looking at, you just can't help but look like from curiosity or from just being shocked, from shock value. So there is absolutely the use of um, addictive personality and human psychology to keep you engaged because the more engaged you are, the more money the platforms make through um, directed mm-hmm. targeted advertising and through the information they, they sell by looking at your habits online. Um, what were you saying or doing right before you clicked on this product? Or, you know, you are surveilled. Children are surveilled. Adults are surveilled. So there is a big addictive quality to it as well. And also a big cautionary tale for the fast spreading of hate speech online, including anti-Semitism. Do you think the algorithms directly promote that? Um, they don't, you know, they don't program like give people anti-Semitic stuff. They don't program that. But they have algorithms where they feed you more and more and more extreme stuff to keep you shocked and engaged and reading. And, and uh, someone that I was listening to recently said it's not that the thing itself is so interesting it's just that it's so awful that you can't help but look it's like rubbernecking like you know you shouldn't be looking when there's an accident because you can get into an accident and it's awful but you just can't help it because as human beings we are programmed to sur- for our survival so we want to know what's going on we want to know what the threats are and algorithms of these social media platforms currently thrive by keeping you engaged. And to do that, they have to feed you more and more extreme or shocking or surprising content to get your attention. The other thing that does is it just keeps you alert in a sort of a natural way. The whole time you're on the platform. And this certainly can't be good for children either for anyone, but particularly for children. Mm-hmm. Like among people who fight anti-Semitism online, I've heard a lot of debate uh, about whether it's good or bad to repost something because you might actually be boosting the algorithm. And um, I mean, do you, did your research uncover anything about that? I didn't do uh, deep qualitative research I mean quantitative or qualitative or really any empirical research in my book. I use case studies, and most of my work is theoretical, but it's a theory that holds good water uh, about why we attempt to punish others and why we get punished. Like what is the process that happens that causes you to get angry and try to go after somebody, quote, unquote, Mm -hmm. online? So to that degree, you know, it's it's kind of a helpful theory. So why is social media a platform that's geared towards users who actually wish to cancel or punish other people? That seems so strange. But, you know, I don't think people get online setting out to punish others, but it is exactly the process where we come into contact with people from all over the world who have vastly different worldviews. 
So everyone has a worldview that they're brought up in. This is the theory of Ernest Becker, and it's called the Quest for Significance Theory. As you develop um, and you have your sort of uh, grounded pegs, you know, you have your landmarks, your psychological landmarks that are orienting you to how you view the world. When you get online, you're talking to people, you're communicating with people that have completely different life experiences and wouldn't hesitate for a moment to like just tell you off because you've offended them. So all these people are sort of clashing with one another. In addition to that, because we're not face-to-face or we don't know the person, the online environment provides some anonymity or false anonymity. You, uh, you feel like you're talking to a page rather than a real person, and right. that makes it even easier. The 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 actual um, fact of the matter is that all of us have the potential to be to do a lot of good online, uh, but we also have the potential to instantly, because we're threatened or our worldview has been threatened, our sense of survival has been threatened. We all have this tendency to either shut down or attack. And that's what sort of is breathes the cyber punishment aspect. Uh, and of course, armies of activists who want to encourage other people to see the world as they do or they use it as a tool as a group sometimes to cancel, let's say, certain professors who have viewpoints that they don't like or um, certain reporters, you know, get them off the media, off the platform. So we use it. We use it intentionally. But all of this is because we see people who threaten our worldview. But it, my study, though, applies more to, like, person-to-person stuff. Like, how does this happen within one person where all of a sudden I'm finding myself trolling someone I don't know or someone that I even do know but never expected to be in this kind of a conflict with? Mm-hmm. Like there's a troll in each of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't necessarily think mm. that the Internet uh, doesn't do good things. For example, we hear these great stories. Uh, I remember one about this guy who his dad had just opened a donut shop and he hadn't sold a single donut the whole first day of being open. So his son tweets it out and then it goes viral. And before the shop closes in the last hour, like 500 people come in there and buy donuts. So. Oh, wow. He becomes very successful. Yes, the Internet can do that. But it, the way it is currently, the way the laws are currently, the way um, the legal system has not caught up, especially with respect to children's safety and security, to um, what we expect of businesses, uh, has made the Internet a very dangerous place, especially social media. Uh, has made it a dangerous place for children and I would argue for adults as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like it amplifies whatever is there. You know, it has the power to amplify good or bad, and unfortunately it's often the bad. Um, What are the different kinds of bullying that are officially recognized by the U.S. Department of Justice? I know, you know, we, we may think a lot of things are bullying, but 
when you report something online as online abuse, a lot of people are very frustrated when Facebook or Instagram or Twitter says, no, it didn't violate our standards. So, But there are certain things that are officially recognized. Yes. Um, and I think it's useful to separate the policies of the platforms from the from the federal law. Um, under federal law, you can have, there's something called cyber harassment where, you know, if they find that someone's been pursuing somebody else and repeatedly harassing them, that's a, that's a sort of a charge. Also doxing where you publicize somebody's personal information, like their, where they live, that's illegal under federal law. And um, so there are certain criteria that are chargeable, but I think the policies of the platforms are very convoluted. I would say that they're applied inconsistently. Nobody knows what they are. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're kicked off for like six weeks and then you come back and they're like, oh, sorry, our bad. You know, I've even told, I've even discussed with some attorneys. I'm not an attorney. I don't know anything about the law. I'm a sociologist. But I've even discussed with some attorneys that I think consumers or users of online platforms should have a sort of a something like the Fair Credit Reporting Act, where if there was something bad on your credit, you had very clear ways, you knew what the problem was, you knew what the remedy was. And I think policies should be the same for for these online platforms, where if they, you know, suspend you, particularly if you're a business owner, you need to know exactly which policy you violated and, you know, what their terms are and how you can remedy it. Um, The way it is right now, it's like a free-for-all. It's completely completely arbitrary. I love that. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I just, as a consumer, that's how I felt. A few times on Facebook, I I guess I must have pressed like too many times, and they thought I was a bot. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) it was very hard for me to get back on, or I couldn't comment, and I'm like, I haven't made, you know, it's very frustrating because people that aren't necessarily trolling or aren't bots or who aren't doing anything wrong can often get suspended for reasons they don't understand. And if they have any kind of a commercial activity related to that, or even if they don't, they just want to keep in contact with their friends, it's crazy making that the companies have so much commercial power and the consumers are left holding the bag. They basically are at the mercy of these policies that are inconsistently applied. Well, and this is really systemic, uh, some would say, towards the Jewish community and other communities too, because I, I know for a fact there are many Jewish activists and other Jewish thought leaders and, you know, of many, not just Jewish who find themselves, they can't prove it, but they know, quote-unquote, that they've been shadow banned. Or I know, you know, people who had a page, they were getting 100 new likes, and all of a sudden it's just the same number for six months. Uh, They're not seeing things, and it's very frustrating because there's no recourse, and the algorithm has so much power. 
and from what I understand, there is a list that you're talking about. I love this idea of the Fair Reporting Act because you need to know what's on it, and they share it. From what I'm aware of, they do share, you know, across one platform to another. And this is high-tech stuff. People can't, the everyday person doesn't know. Even if, if they had access, they wouldn't necessarily know how to break it down. So that's a really important thing where you're talking about. That's really interesting that you learned that the platforms share everything. Um, I I hadn't heard of that, but it doesn't surprise me because data collection companies, of which these platforms are a lot of, or else they sell to the data collections, they look at you as a person. So they take things that you do and share and talk about from several platforms. In other words, even if you never get on Facebook, if you've never been there, there's a little avatar profile of you that's just sitting there waiting for you to claim it. You know what I mean? Wow. <laughs> and that's a kind of a scary thought. But yes. That is so uh, scary. So let's go back a little bit to the Jewish community uh, and take an issue like uh, Israel and Zionism. There are many, many, as you know, 75% of U.S. Jews and probably 100% of uh, Israeli Jews or 99.999 are Zionists. Uh, so what do we mean by that? I mean that we have the right to self-determination uh, as, a, you know, we have a right to group the collective self-determination in terms of the state of Israel. And a lot of things that are said right now by the Jewish community on platforms are often often shadow banned or even nixed uh, overtly because they are afraid to offend other communities who are especially like for example the Arab communities the Palestinian communities it would, does not surprise me for you to say that a lot of Jewish and Israeli activists are finding themselves shadow banned and so recently, oh, for two years now, for years now, I mean, there were whole entire pages that just disappeared one day. I know people that had, you know, thousands of tens of thousands of people just gone. And there's also, um, I know that if, you know, th there can be malicious intents where the people who hate Zionists orchestrate to all report a page at the same time. There are the weird different things that could trigger algorithms, and of course the algorithm can change at different times, but some of this was by malicious intent by people who hate Jews. Uh, I, I have no idea of what's happening lately. It's, it's always changing, but I think shadow banning is one of the most frustrated things because you, you know something's not right, it's just not the same, or your comment shows up and it's dot, 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 and People can't, they're like, mm -hmm. why can't I see your comments? I think that's... And you can't of, prove it. Right. You, you can't prove it, but if you're, if you're an administrator of a Facebook group, then I suspect some people listening are, um, you know that there's moderation controls they give you. And the one interesting thing that came out in the last year was you can slow comments down. And I would consider that a form of shadow banning because you're you're making it where somebody in your group, so now you're moderating, uh, you're playing God in your little group, and you can make it so they can't comment more than every five minutes. So that could be yes. why maybe Facebook. I, I did read somewhere that if you 
if you do two more than I don't want to say this for sure because it's it's been a while. It's like 100 or 200 uh, initiations in an hour. If you that that could be a click, a like, uh, something. They like to limit you to something, and so that could trigger ah. a lot of activity. So I, I did read that like about a year ago. So I. I oh, that's interesting. <laughs> That's interesting because I, you know, I don't have a whole lot of time on, uh, so when I do go on Facebook once in a while, I'll like what my friends have said. So I'll just go down the list, like, 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 you know, and, and that is one of those times when I was doing that, I was, uh, I got, I was no longer able to do it because then they said, you know, they thought I was a bot or something like that. It's kind of crazy because. Um, if you think about it, I'm not really an at, a big user in that sense. Right. So, so you're getting penalized for just going down a list of likes, and it's very arbitrary. <laughs> my, my my impression, because I've gathered a lot of data on this for for someone that wants to do a lawsuit um, on all of this and how the Jewish community is being censored mm-hmm. and. Um, is that there's part of it is willful, intentional, and part of it is just that they're just so overwhelmed and they they outsource so much of this to the AI. And the AI and its algorithm is not very good. And so it's hard to know what was malicious or not. But either way, tying back to this, it's a perfectly right for a lot of social media victimization. And the algorithm certainly does not seem to be tipped in the favor of Jews. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that it has definitely impacted the Jewish community in terms of being able to advocate for, especially for Israel and Zionism, but actually any kind of thing related to our community. For example, right now I'm seeing a lot of uh, material on Twitter about uh, it's expressions of support for Farrakhan by the hip-hop community on Twitter, you know. Now, if you think about it, the Nation of Islam and Louis Farrakhan are listed on the Southern Poverty Law Center as a hate group. And, of course, we've listened to some of the garbage that comes out of his mouth, and there's no question about it that he's a virulent anti-Semite. But I'm sure that if somebody goes on Twitter from the Jewish community and starts challenging all these posts, they are going to get suspended in no time, you know? Because we have a a lot of different communities. It's a big double standard, yes. And it really needs to be cleaned up. Um, Recently, there was, there was, uh, I think Elon Musk had opened up and sent a bunch of documents to journalists called the Twitter papers, the Twitter files, he called it. So he released Mm -hmm. the communications of Twitter executives before he took ownership. He sent it to Barry Weiss, which I'm so happy about because she, I find her to be very balanced, you know, Um, and also to Matt Taibbi. So I'm coming out, I'm reading all this stuff that Matt Taibbi had put out in tweets. Um, It's not easy to understand something in Twitter, you know, as a long tweet. But it's better than nothing. The reactions that I was looking at was 
it was either people on the left who were appalled that these things were released and they were upset that, you know, oh, now we're going to have hate speech on Twitter in the name of freedom of speech. That's what the left was saying. And then the right was uh, appalled that so many executives in Twitter were talking to the FBI uh, and complying readily taking politicians' messages off or shadow banning Republican politicians. So I'm looking at this left, right, left, right. I'm reading all these remarks. And the bigger picture for me was, you know, why are a bunch of Twitter oligarchs controlling the public discourse this way? It's awful for the public sphere, you know. And, of course, some lawyer will say to me, some lawyer will say to me, but but it's not a public, you know, Twitter is not the public sphere. Exactly, people. Uh, these companies mm-hmm. are not the public sphere, but they have such monopoly over our discourse that they act as the public sphere. So something, somehow we have to reconcile this, and the state has to do it. Uh, Congress has to do it. The United States, the people of the United States have to do it, not... 10 oligarchs sitting inside these companies or five or one. Exactly. Exactly. What does your book say about how social media affects our democracy? Uh, I actually don't really talk much about democracy in the social media, except for actually in chapter one, where I do mention that in the old days, old days being pre social media, which was not so long ago, it was in 2000s. Uh, So before social media, the way we did civic engagement was through other places or other institutions where people would gather. Your workplace, your synagogue or church, um, your social clubs, things like that. So there were so many studies of traditional civic engagement. One of them, the big one, was by Joseph Verba, who wrote Voice Inequality. And my dissertation was actually about civic engagement using his principles, which was we may not have so much in common, but we know each other through these institutions. And when something happens in our community where we have to take action together, we just pull it together and take action. Um, On Twitter, or not just Twitter, on social media, a lot of civic engagement has now gone to social media. And that is is something that actually has made it really bad for civic engagement. One of the reasons is because you don't really know the people, so you don't know how much you have in common with them or how little you have in common with them. And that becomes important, especially if a conflict arises online. Uh, Some of the people that others end up trolling may actually, in real life, probably get along, you know. So because these algorithms sort of govern how we interact with one another, they have the tendency to really interrupt and monopolize civic engagement itself. The process of democracy is endangered when we are using algorithms as the intermediary for, as, to get to know one another. We're not really conversing. We're just sort of thrown together based on whatever 
the algorithms decide. Does that apply also to groups where there is some self-selection in terms of a specific genre or, or grouping of people? I think it actually applies even more because really? the way that we find each other in groups is based on an issue. So you'll see a group that's based on an issue, you know, like moms against drunk driving, for example. Um, it's not based on the whole person. So you don't get enough information about what your cross-cutting commonalities are. Like um, what generation is this person from? What is their religion? Uh, where do they live? In other words, it's a, it's a strictly issues-based uh, galvanization of groups. So it's a very different from traditional civic engagement where, you know, you may or may not have so much in common with other people, but you get together when the whole community decides, hey, this is important. You know, this bill we have for, to protect kids for against online harassment is important. So let's get together. Let's work on this. Um, that may be one reason why people can no longer work together even in Congress, we're having people unable to work with one another, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think social media activism has influenced our inability to have consensus because you're not really interacting with a person. You're just uh, galvanizing as a group. Now, I'm not saying you can't go offline or you can't go on, you know, on Messenger and talk about other things until you figure out who you like and who you don't like. But on uh, mass civic engagement is very difficult on these social platforms. Mm-hmm. I, I think the, the like button and blocking are really significant because blocking is, is sort of the precursor to cancellation. Um, and, you know, instead of you having to stay there and cope with something or you taking the initiative to leave, you can block and uh, you can do things like that. And also the likes, uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how I think that ties into the addiction probably that, well, that was my report, but, um, you know, I, I noticed they introduced something new where you can elect not to show the number of likes. And I think that was rather interesting, maybe a, a, something moving in the right direction. Um, any thoughts yeah. on that? I think the, the like button is like a curse, especially for young people, for children. Children right now are so driven to get that, both that sort of addictive uh, hit that you get you know, they say it's related to dopamine in the brain where you're, you're like, what's the next newsy thing? What's going on out there? You keep going back to the platform wanting more and more and more. That's one part. The other part is the likes. When you're a young, vulnerable teenager, you want to be liked. So if you know that, you know, the popular person in class has like 500 likes for something really mundane that they posted and then and you're trying really hard to get like 10 likes that's going to affect your self-esteem 
Um, so the like button and just the whole way people quantify popularity and likability online, on Instagram, for example, has been very harmful for children because it has both the addictive aspect where they keep living their whole social life online. Everything is related to what they're seeing. It's very visual. Um, It's very sort of polished and sensational. And then if they don't get the likes that they think they might, it makes them depressed. So I think that has there is something to be said that the like button has started this race that's unwinnable. It feels like of, we've outsourced. Go ahead, sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, I was done. Well, it feels like yeah, we we've outsourced so much to artificial intelligence, and that's nothing new. I think social media is the the latest iteration of that on steroids, but um, I know we, we spoke about uh, Neil Postman, uh, one of my mentors, who I think if he was alive would just love your book and the work you're doing kind of continues his. And back oh, in the thank day, you. I find text. that very flattering. I, I looked oh, Neil I, up I, after I, you mentioned him to me, and he was so prescient. I, he should have been the first book I ever read. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Technopoly, that that was my first of his in amusing ourselves to death. I mean, this was like, you know, the 90s. And what you showed me was the video he did to Apple. And I remember in the 90s when I was a student, not many people were talking about digital ethics, which is what you're talking about essentially here. And there's just all of this new technology coming out and everyone was like, ooh, it's faster, 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 but is it better? And what are the effects? I mean, even Plato said you, you can't introduce something without it affecting something else. Uh, and it doesn't seem like the leaders in Silicon Valley are wired to think that way. And I saw this in other industries where, you know, we're we're evaluated by numbers that can be fake. The number of Twitter followers, the number of, you know, likes determines if someone gets a record deal sometimes. If you, you have these base analytics of this or that that are just fake. And so people go out and then they fake them. And what's happening to quality? It's just, it's ridiculous. Um, yeah. You know, it's very the disturbing. Metric. And, and, and mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. The me- we are looking at the wrong metrics for quality. If something's really good quality, you know, is that what you meant? Yeah, the the wrong metric. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing for older people who remember an older time uh, went before all of this back in the analog days. But for our kids, I mean, you know, what what significance does your research have for? today's kids using social media, I mean, coming as they grow up, I mean, it's a totally, a totally different way of looking at the world. And they don't have the benefit we have of, of the old analog ways. Yes, yes. I think the significance, uh, not only of my book, but we're have, coming up on a convergence of realizations from different angles that the way online platforms are operating today, all of them, social media, uh, especially anything that has to do with uh, 
well, mostly social media, all of these have problematic values. Like they're based on commercial gain. And therefore, it's very difficult to inculcate ethical values into some operation that is basically there to make a profit. But we do do it. We call it corporate social responsibility. And I, I think it's incumbent on our legislatures and our governments and our citizens to talk to the legislatures to say, you know, this is sort of upside down. We're putting profits before the safety of our children. And they have to change that from the ground up. They have to systemically change the values that everything's predicated upon where safety comes first, especially for minors, and then there's the profit-making on top of that. Right now, it's the other way around. Um, And there are really not set rules for the road. It's almost like the Wild West. Yeah. What would you like to see happen, Um, Section 230? Well, I... I don't really want to get into the technicalities of it because there are people who are much more qualified than me, but I have been following a lot of different organizations who are seeking what we call more humanity in technology. So one of the one of the best professors who wrote a book called um, Surveillance Capitalism has talked about how the ability of these companies to surveil everything we do and are and consume um, has created that profit incentive to be the first most important value of all these companies. Uh, and another one is uh, Center for Humane Technology. They are an organization, you can go look them up online, who also realize that the foundation of these companies is for commercial gain and it does not hesitate to exploit people psychologically, financially, mostly psychologically, but we're all paying for it. Um, So Mm -hmm. I'd like to see some of the principles that these two places, well, Dr. Shoshana... um, I'm sorry, I'll get her name, but she wrote Surveillance Capitalism. She has had some something to say about how to improve these, the situation right now. The bottom line is we have to put people's safety and ethics first and then build the platforms upon that. This doesn't require new technology. It requires new priorities, and it requires transparency. So something like that Fair Credit Reporting Act uh, where people know what the story is when they get suspended or people know what they can and can't say, uh, is very. It, it would go a long way to cre- create some clarity with these platforms. Is Elon Musk a hero? Um, he's a hero and a villain. <laughs> <laughs> he's a hero because he's revealed in black and white the hypocrisy, you know, and the amount of control that his predecessors and now he himself have over the public sphere. So in that sense, yes, he's a hero. In the sense that he's, you know, kind of a little bit um, unpredictable and 
has a certain point of view and has now started uh, ejecting people from Twitter who he doesn't like their point of view, it's the same story as what there was before that. So mm-hmm. I think he's a hero and a villain. Um, is he? He's not my cup of tea, in, either politically or anything like that, but he has really brought to light some very, very problematic things about all of these social platforms, which is they have too much power, they have too much power to censor people, and they have no transparency whatsoever. And they govern a platform that is private but acts like the public sphere, and that's a big conflict. Yeah. What is the difference between our system and the Chinese social credit system? Are, are, are we getting there yet? Uh, are we significantly different? Well, I think that because there's no transparency, uh, you know, we don't really know if there is a credit system right now. I don't believe that the state is doing anything like that, but you, you bet that commercial entities are doing something like that with respect to people's credit creditworthiness and do we know what these what the principles are like how are they how much info are they collecting and what do they know about us because i can guarantee you a lot of companies a lot of platforms know much more about us but because they have congregated they have aggregated all these different pieces of information from our online behavior, and also our cell phone behavior, they know more about us than we know about ourselves. So cell phone is also a big one, yeah. Oh, Well, and there was that leak with Cambridge Analytica uh, where Facebook, all that data was leaked, Um, and they they just sell our lists. They sell our our data and profiles. So, I know, maybe we should just like... Maybe we should like a bunch of pages we don't like just to confuse them. (laughs) (laughs) That won't do it because the cell phone, the smartphone was actually what uh, gave an entry to these companies, to these information companies to be in our lives. That's why they produce their own operating systems and even their own phones. So any phone you buy today, it's either going to be Android, which belongs to Google, or it's going to be an Apple which, you know, people are like, oh, Apple has such good security, but you know what? They're still, they still know everything yeah. about you. Um, yeah. These companies own the phone. They own the hardware. They, they are in your life. They know if your phone is in the bedroom or in the bathroom, um, unless you go to great lengths to have a different kind of telephone that you can't even find on the market nowadays. So, yeah, it's a problem, and we need legislatures to provide American people transparency. It's scary. It's scary. Jessica, what can parents do to protect their children? I mean, as bad as it is for adults dealing with this, it's got to be a nightmare for kids. And, you know, as as I discussed in the open, our kids, Jewish kids, they're going through a lot. Absolutely. I would say, for example, if you can, keep your kids away from phones as long as possible. Put them in a Waldorf school, which doesn't allow technology. Um, Keep that away as long as possible. I know that's difficult. It's a Herculean task. Um, If you have a phone, I, 
I make this joke, but it's not really a joke that before age 18, having a cell phone in a kid's hand is like a dangerous weapon. But there are kid phones. There's a company right now called uh, Murina that makes a phone called Thrive for Children, which gives parents a lot of ability to both uh, know what their kid's doing online and also to keep the phone more private than the average phone. But it's you know it's not commercially available for everybody. It shouldn't have to be so hard to keep your children safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the fact of the matter is, the quicker your kid goes online, on, especially on a smartphone, the more chances they have to get embroiled in this sort of uh, in this circuit that that puts them at risk for depression addiction and these problems that we're now just hearing about. For example, I think I I think I mentioned to you last week that there was a 60 minutes about children who've been harmed by Instagram and now there are some lawsuits going on. Yeah, like 1200 lawsuits. It was just an astonishing uh-huh. number, I think you said. Yeah. That is I, I find massive. That was not surprising to me at all, um but Using having a safe phone for your kid where they can't go around the safeguards even if they want to, it's so important. And right now, something like that is not really commercially available easily to parents. They don't even know that they, that they need to do that. Um, so there's a lot of both media literacy education that needs to happen, as well as... Um, commercial transparency which will not happen until we demand this from our legislators I feel like it's a perfect storm because so much of this falls under change management in terms of the digital the digital literacy that frankly kids have, it favors them more than older people who we have a learning curve to learn all of this and the kids just learn it so quickly and so I mean is it even realistic for for parents and grandparents to even always know and keep tabs on this if the kids are that much savvier yeah no it's not realistic it's up to the companies to provide safety but they're not going to do that until we as parents pressure the companies you know through our legislation Um, You don't want to have the accidents happen and then have to do lawsuits. What were you saying? So should people write to their Congress representatives? Absolutely. Uh, Write to your representatives and, you know, tell them that you're aware that the way uh, social media are right now, they're deleterious to children and that we demand more transparency as to exactly what safety measures these companies are taking for our children, both for, you know, how addictive it is, um, how the algorithms show them more and more extreme things when they're online, um, and that's, that's other types of safeguards. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, can you explain what digital fatwa is? Huh, <laughs> digital fatwa. Well, um, Fatwa, as you know, is a, is a Muslim 
it's an Islamic law. It's a de- declaration by somebody who's uh, an authority, a religious authority. And, of course, in the Shia religion, Shia Muslim sect, that would be the clerics or the mullahs. So this has sort of become a, a fatwa. It's like, I said it, and it's the law. It's like a king saying something. So digital fatwa is the equivalent of, you know, somebody's in some corner of the digital sphere deciding that they're going to go after somebody or they're going to say something very dictatorial that everybody's got to follow. Um, so I think that's what you mean by digital fatwa, correct? Mm-hmm. I was reading it in your yeah. book. Um, you mentioned yes. it there. Um, um, as a matter of fact, oh, this is a good story. As a matter of fact, I used the word digital fatwa in the sense that I opened the book with Salman Rushdie, which in my life was the first time I remember where somebody was sort of canceled in real life. So, of course, the Ayatollah Khomeini had set a price on the head of the author Salman Rushdie for writing the Satanic Verses, which was a satire on the life of the prophet, a very intelligent satire. So he, the Ayatollah Khomeini promised a million dollars in 1989 to anybody who would, God forbid, slay Salman Rushdie. This was the fatwa. And I thought to myself, I, I thought, what power one person has to go after another person. So when I wrote my book, I realized that today on social media, you know, the power of aggregation and tracking has enabled groups of people to target some other people. And it reminded me of that fatwa. What's interesting was that I talked to some colleagues about the me using the Salman Rushdie example, and they said, oh, you know, they were minimizing it. They were saying, you know, and I know that that thing's no longer really holding water. It's no longer relevant. The Islamic Republic has backed down. And no, no sooner had they said that, one month before my book went to print, Salman Rushdie was... Mortal, almost mortally injured and now has lost an eye and the use of part of his hand from somebody stabbing him. These kinds of declarations or fatwas, as I like to call them, they don't go away. They stay toxic in the air unless we have an ability to eliminate it, you know, to silence it. And that goes back to 1989. And, yeah. of course, Ayatollah Khomeini has never gotten Facebook jail or Twitter jail. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, he, I don't think he's been kicked off Twitter from, from what I know. Oh, boy. So. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, nor, or his predecessor. Believe me, he's got to run on, run on Twitter, that's for sure. We have mm-hmm. many members of the community now today have demanded from Twitter to have the Ayatollah Khamenei, his successor, uh, be deplatformed because the Iranian government is doing such egregious human rights violations. And so far we haven't seen that because he's the head of a state. Um, but that should not be a good reason not to deplatform someone who's spewing anti-Semitic epithets and constantly making 
you know, threats against the West. It feels like there's a double standard. <laughs> there's that word again, and it's true. Yes, there is a double yep. standard. Um, but, you know, I think things will come around if we as citizen groups continue to pressure both the platforms and our legislatures. For example, I'm seeing some pressure about Iran. If you would have told me, you know, during the time, during 2015 when the JCPOA was being negotiated or 2009 when people thought Iran could be reformed, the Islamic Republic of Iran I'm referring to, um, nobody was listening to the opposition. But today, um, many people are joining hands because they realize that Iran's government is not reformable. So I'm hoping that we will come around on the on the need to clean up the policies of technology platforms as well. Mm-hmm. Returning to, to Iran, um, what are your thoughts on the current plight of Iranian women at the moment and how the West is reacting? Um, I think that there's been an overall deficiency with feminists in the West responding to what's going on in Iran because the women in Iran are demanding that they be sort of uh, unleashed from the yoke of an Islamic theocracy. So over here in the West, feminists are so afraid of being labeled Islamophobic or politically incorrect if they say anything. It took two and a half months for any group of any women in the United States to publicly say anything about the atrocities in Iran, while women in Europe and in Asia and in uh, the rest of the Middle East were saying lots of things against the Iranian government. They were standing up for the Iranian women. Um, Early on in that period, uh, let's say it would have been October, I wrote an op-ed for Jewish Journal saying just that. If not now, when? You know, so, and even right now, there has been a response from a group called Vital Voices, which was a nonprofit started by Hillary Clinton, where they have made Iranian women a, one of the centerpieces of their efforts to, for gender equality throughout the world. But I'm not seeing much more, I'm not seeing a lot of traditional feminist organizations saying anything about it. And I think it's because they are confused themselves. Um, they have spent so many years preserving the right of women to wear hijab in this country, which is their right, absolutely, but it, it's confusing for them because here's a whole country of women who are saying uh, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to put on a hijab, or at least we don't want the government to tell us to put one on. And they're unveiling in Iran right now. Unveiling is like an act of bravery that is valiantly upheld and encouraged and and viewed as something so brave. And I feel that way. I feel that it is. But over here, the feminists are confused. Like they, they're afraid to say anything, and that I find very cruel and heartless and cowardly. Cowardly. Well, it's a choice over one's body and autonomy. It should be pretty easy for them, and yet it's not. Yes, the choice should be. You know, if I want to wear 
whatever I want to wear is my business. That's the choice in a democracy, you see. And so if women want to wear one, here we fight for their right to wear one because some women were being harassed who wanted to wear a veil because it's their religion, it's their religious identity. Um, same thing with kippot. But in a place like Iran where a government says that they represent an entire religion, which, you know, they really don't, uh, they're making every person dress a certain way. What's more interesting is that even the hijab laws themselves are not exact, like the those morality police that go around and police women, hey, you're wearing your hijab wrong. There's not an exact law about how you should be, and it's very arbitrary. So, so many people are in jail when they really have no business jailing people for that. No, it's very sad. It's very sad. We actually had um, a pre-submitted audience question on this, and you answered uh, part of it already, but Sarah asks, why haven't Western feminists, especially Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Linda Sarsour, shown any support for their sisters in Iran during the hijab protests? Where is everybody? Uh, Any additional thoughts to add to that? Well, I do want to say that Ilhan Omar did, when she was campaigning just before the midterm elections, did actually say that what you wear, whether you wear hijab or not, is something between you and your God. And she stood up for the Iranian women in public. The other two have not. Um, Again, I think that all three of those women have been steeped here in the um, sort of politically correct system of fighting so hard to wear hijab in a country that where most people don't want to wear one that they've become sort of uh, blind to the fact that veiling began as a form of social control of women. It is a tool that the patriarchy used to control women's sexual drive, women, uh, not sexual drive, but women's personal appearance, their sexuality. Um, they viewed it as being related to their beauty and their reproductive capacity. So it was a tool by society to control women. So if you go back and understand that, you will understand that it's, you need to support women who say, I don't want to wear a veil. And the people around me, the institutions around me are making me wear a veil. That's oppressive. Every feminist needs to stand up for women who do not want to wear veils. And, it, you know, it's very basic. It's very basic, but we have allowed political correctness to to paralyze American feminists. They're paralyzed. They, they don't want to say anything. I mean, it's my body, my choice. It's real simple, and and yet it is. Um. <laughs> I know it's very simple, but we're not hearing anything out of them. What's going yeah. on? So, Jessica, what do you wish everyone would do right now to help the women in Iran? What I wish everyone would do would, is to contact their senators, their House of Representatives, and contact the president and demand some things. One is end the nuclear negotiations formally. 
In other words, get on the radio and say, the United States is no longer pursuing the, the JCPOA. End it. Because Iran has moved the goalposts. Because they have. The second thing is that, you know, demand Iran get out of FIFA. Right, FIFA? And FIFA is the football federation. Um, they're... Right now, we have the World Cup going on. Iran put an athlete from the team on death row because he supported the women. In their stadiums, they don't allow women to be spectators. Why is the federal, the International Federation of Football allowing a team to even be a member when there's so, this kind of discrimination and gender apartheid going on? If you're Canadian or if you're from somewhere other than the United States, write your representative, call them up and say, I demand that you recall the ambassador from Iran and close the embassy because they are an apartheid state. They're slaughtering their own people. They're, no, they're sort of like they need to be like South Africa's apartheid regime was, non grata. These are some of the most basic things that needs to be done. I will say I'm very happy that just yesterday, or the day before yesterday, Iran was ejected from the United, United Nations Commission on the Status of Women. This yeah. was something that happened because several groups, uh, including, I might add, Vital Voices, which is Hillary uh, Clinton and a bunch of other people's nonprofit organization for gender equality, they all got uh, together along with Iranian activists from all over the world, particularly Europe and Canada is the one that put the motion in to eject women, eject Iran from the UN Commission on the Status of Women. That was That was just a bridge too far for them to be a member. Um, we're hopeful that with this development, we can also encourage the Security Council to to uh, put the snapback. The snapback are the penalties that apply when if Iran violates the JCPOA, which they apparently have by providing drones to U.S. to Soviet <laughs> Soviet to Russia. Um, so yes. Another thing people can do is to call their representatives and to demand that they um, ask the UN Security Council to to institute the snapback penalties or sanctions on Iran for selling drones and producing drones for Russia uh, for use to slaughter Ukrainians. Um, they have, you know, the fact that Iran is now cooperating with Russia to throw bombs at other Europeans at the same time that they are executing their own children is something that has to be something that the world needs to pay attention to greatly. Well, it's so those are some more ideas. important to pay attention to that than Israel. You know, maybe they could spend less time attacking Israel <laughs> and uh, put that attention Absolutely. On Absolutely. And if I don't know if you know or not, but the Iranian opposition, the Iranian Gen Z, the people who are out there risking their necks on the street are very supportive of Israel because, you know, they are not drinking the Kool-Aid anymore. 
They understand that Israel is just another country. Um, there are a lot of similarities between Israelis and Iranians, and I think that it would bode really well if um, the Islamic Republic were to be defeated and the chance for democracy in Iran were to prevail. It would also make the Middle East much more stable, and it would make Israel a lot more stable. Um, Iran, the Islamic Republic, spends a lot of money, sends a lot of money to Hamas, to Hezbollah, and other er, other groups that destabilize the Middle East and intend to destroy Israel. So this would very much help if the Jewish community and the Israelis work together to help the opposition of Iran. I didn't know that about the younger generation in Iran. That's very encouraging. Um, what are Jewish people doing that you're aware of to, to reach out to them? Well, Jewish people generally have always been very supportive of any effort to um, weaken the Islamic Republic. And the reason is because they are a um, rogue government who's who has, you know, they have three pillars. There are three pillars when they were instituted. I've written about this in my uh, analyses of the speeches of the Ayatollah Khomeini. The three things that they instituted as three pillars were mandatory hijab for women, the destruction of Israel, and opposition of, to the United States. So those three things are, for them, are like a three-legged stool. You know, you take one or two of them out, and the stool can't stand anymore. You take one of them out. Take take out the mandatory hijab. So, um, it, the Israeli and the Jewish community have always been for the Iranians who want their freedoms back. And today they are among the communities who are helping the most as well. Well, Jessica, this has been so interesting. Um, how can people learn more and support your work? Well, one of the ways you can support my work is going to my website, jessicaimami.com. If you're a teacher or professor, you can adopt my book, or if you just want to read it, there's a 30% off coupon code on there. You can purchase my book, um, send me an email, start a conversation. That would be very helpful. Great. So we have a lightning round. Ready for that? Uh, yeah, sure. Why are, you, why are you proud to be a Jew? I'm proud to be a Jew because I was attracted to Judaism through people who mentored me and took care of me as a teenager when I first came to the United States and I didn't have my parents around. They um, took me into their homes and their hearts and brought me up, and that was my initial affinity for Judaism. Um, it also makes me proud to be a Jew because, um, I don't know, I think Judaism has a lot of firsts. They wrote the what I look at as like the first holy book, and I just think they're very original. So that's what makes me proud to be a Jew. Who are your Jewish role models? Uh, you know, I was thinking about this. Uh, other than the role models who are my direct mentors, of course, Golda um, Meir is my Jewish model role model. Believe it or not. No, well, she's great. A good one, Mama. She's great, you know. Oh. She had leadership qualities. She always knew who she was, and she always stood up for for justice. 
And when the chips were down, she figured out a way to fix things. Yeah, yeah. What fills you with despair about the Jewish people? What fills me with despair is the thought that the Islamic Republic will not be overthrown and will acquire nuclear capabilities. That, to me, represents a mortal threat to Israel. And that, that really has me despairing, you know. What makes you mad? What makes me mad? What makes me mad is that feminists in the West are not helping or portraying the, they're not being supportive of the Iranian women. It's just not happening in the ways and the numbers that we have expected. That makes me mad. For those who look up to you, what do you want them to remember? Oh, um, what I want them to remember is that I'm a kind person and I'm always willing to sit down with anybody. Um, you know, I think at heart I'm a teacher, and that's why I still make sure that I teach every semester. Um, I just want them to remember that I try to be a good teacher. What's your outlook of the Jewish people? Are you hopeful? Oh, always. Always. I'm always uh, most hopeful on the outlook of the Jewish people. Um, We have always had resilience, versatility, and if anyone can figure out how to, how to fix a conundrum, it's the Jewish people. And we Dr. have a great Jessica, sense of humor. We do. We do have one. So, Jessica and Mommy, <laughs> thank you for being with us today. And we look forward to having you on again. And best of luck with your new book. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And I hope I talk to you again about other topics. that's it for this edition of Talking Point. Join us next time when we'll have Dr. Jared Tanney on to discuss the state of anti-Zionism within Jewish studies and how the Jewish Studies Zionist Network is fighting back. Until then, this is Laura Kessler for the Jewish TV channel. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Talking Point on Jewish TV channel the voice of Jewish communities worldwide. We look forward to seeing you again.